No matter how rich and famous, we all pass away, sometimes tragically too soon. Almost two years ago, Kobe Bryant, the former NBA superstar and longtime face of the Los Angeles Lakers, died in a tragic helicopter crash. When asked why he used a helicopter in a 2018 interview, he explained, I wound up missing a school play because, because I was sitting in traffic. The problem just kept mounting, and I had to figure out a way that I could still train and focus on the craft, but still not compromise family time. So that's when I looked into helicopters and being able to get down and back in 15 minutes. Although Kobe Bryant had recently retired from professional basketball, he had multiple promising projects on which he was working. Literally, he faded away in the midst of his pursuits. Another equally tragic example is Princess Diana. While attempting to avoid paparazzi, Diana's driver lost control of their vehicle and violently crashed. The princess was rushed to the hospital but was pronounced dead some three hours later. The United Nations Secretary General, commenting on her passing, said that her death has robbed the world of a consistent and committed voice for the improvement of the lives of suffering children worldwide. She, like Kobe Bryant, faded away in the midst of her work. These two examples, as sad as they are, illustrate the truth of tonight's passage. Like a flower in the scorching sun, so too will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Look down at James 1, starting in verse 9 with me. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. I want us to focus on this truth. The rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Listen tonight to this truth. Then go back to this text and chew on it and apply it as you leave here and engage in the everyday challenge of treasuring Christ above the riches of the world, knowing that, like the flower in the scorching sun, so too will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. In order to know and apply this truth effectively, we need to first know the traps of worldly status. Know the traps of worldly status. Second, we must treasure Christ. And third, We must stay true to the faith. One of the major themes in James is the contrast between the rich and the poor. And the author does not beat around the bush in condemning the various sins associated with these two categories. Even when the rich and poor are not explicitly mentioned in James, the theme is often an integral part of its background and context. So for the whole book, and particularly for this passage, we need to understand the traps of worldly status. Understanding this will help us make greater sense of the folly of riches and how that impacts our daily lives. These two categories of rich and poor are highlighted by the counterintuitive way that, Jesus, or that James exhorts each group. 
Without verses 9 and 10, how would you encourage or warn the rich and poor? To the poor, I might say something like, be content with what you have. Trust in the Lord's provision. And to the rich, I would probably say, view your riches as blessings from God and be good stewards of them. And honestly, there's good biblical warrant for saying those things. Yet James takes a different approach. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Let's focus on a, uh, for a bit on this word lowly. The word lowly in the ESV here is translated as humble circumstances in the NIV, which is an attempt to emphasize the material contrast with the rich in this passage. But I like lowly better because this word has more meaning packed into it than just monetary poverty, while at the same time, it includes the materially poor meaning. Flip over a couple pages and look at James chapter 4, verse 6 with me. But he gives more grace, therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Here the word humble is the exact same Greek word that was translated lowly, in chapter 1. Except in this contrast, in chapter 4, the word is not directly contrasted with the rich, but the proud. Like I said before, often the theme of rich and poor is in the background of James, even when not explicitly mentioned. This is true in chapter 4. Look at the beginning of chapter 4 with me, starting in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scriptures say he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us but he gives more grace therefore it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. In chapter 4 the emphasis on covetousness in verse 2 and spending in verse 3, shows that some sense of material wealth is in the context for this passage, even though the main contrast is with the proud. In fact, the word spend in verse 3 conveys a sense of luxurious indulgence. So in order to understand James' approach to exhorting the poor, we need to understand this fuller meaning of the word lowly. James is clearly using the word in chapter 1 to address the believer's socioeconomic situation. But it also includes an attitude of humility that could lend itself to falling into the trap of missing being exalted in Christ. This is most evident by James' use of the word boast in tonight's passage. His use of this word, juxtaposed with the poor, is almost an oxymoron. Because the poor should have nothing in which to boast. It should shock us a bit. But James is saying that in Christ, the poor 
have every reason to boast. Okay, so what? What's the upshot of all of this for you? James clarifies in chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs in the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? In other words, the counterintuitive benefits of being poor and lowly are the spiritual blessings in God's kingdom. To be poor is to be an exalted heir. Why is this so? In contrast to the rich, being poor allows an easier path to valuing the spiritual things of Christ instead of the riches of the world. You who are lowly, and remember, although the socioeconomic aspect is emphasized, this word includes the humble and the poor in spirit. You who are poor will recognize your need more closely, so you are exalted. Christ already tastes sweet to you because you are hungry. Take this to heart, my friends. When the world esteems you not, like they treated Christ our Lord, remember that the rich by the world's standard will pass away like a fading flower. But in Christ you are exalted. In the kingdom you are welcomed. You are clothed with dignity and strength. You are given a spirit not of timidity, but of boldness. For the rich, it is not so. Now, it's important here to say that being rich is not in and of itself sinful. Some might point to the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12. He had an abundance and decided to build bigger barns. But building bigger barns is not in itself sinful. Think of Joseph. When God revealed to him through Pharaoh's dream that there would be a great famine, he stored up grains for seven years. So simply being rich is not sin. James seems to rely on the Gospels for much of his content on the rich and the poor. Or more likely, he relied on Jesus' teaching itself. Because James is most likely the earliest book written in the New Testament. The timing would be like someone writing a book in 1786 in the United States. That person is going to have direct knowledge of the Revolutionary War. Not only will he be discussing it, but it will have impacted and shaped him experientially and personally. This is the case with James in respect to Jesus. Why is James exhorting the rich to boast in their humiliation? Look to Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 19, 24, Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus declares blessing to the poor and woes to the rich. Listen to this. Blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and when they revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. You hear echoes of consider it all joy, my brothers, from earlier in James. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, 
for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. All of these things are likely on James' mind as he writes this letter. I think the best illustration of this contrast between the rich and the poor is when Jesus watched the widow with the two coins from Mark 12. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box. Why? For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. To be rich in a worldly sense is to have abundance and be satisfied. You don't think about your need for food and shelter, much less your spiritual depravity and neediness. It would seem that money covers a multitude of sins. Consider the glutton. The glutton eats and eats so much that he is never hungry. Food ceases to be an answer to hunger and becomes an indulgence that must always be accessible. Its tastiness and sweetness are no longer perceived. Quantity is the only measure. Food is his identity. The same happens with the rich because of their abundance. Because in their abundance, their need for Christ is no longer perceived. He is no longer sweet. Because they long after riches. Don't presume that you don't fall into these temptations. If you had to rank every person that has ever lived in the history of the world up until now on their quality of life and wealth, you would rank higher than most every one of them. And so would I. We live in a rich age and so fall into the trappings of the rich. The truth of the matter is that we live better than the kings and queens of a hundred years ago. Don't miss the dangerous situation in which you live. Being rich in the world is like holding a 4th of July sparkler in the middle of a maze made of hay. Temptations abound and dangers at every turn. We are prone to drift into spiritual idleness and sin because we are comfortable and secure. Remember that like the fading flower, the rich man passes away in the midst of his pursuits. You are the rich man. You are in danger. And the solution to your predicament is to boast in your humiliation. Boast in being made low. Sacrificially give your money and time to the poor and widow and orphan. Give your money freely, not just for others, but for your own spiritual benefit. In doing so, you guard yourself against the folly of riches. Don't let your life be consumed by only making more and more money. And these traps are really just two sides of the same coin. There is really only one trap. The difference between the rich fool building bigger barns and Joseph storing grains is the question of values. The trap is valuing worldly status above all things, whether you're poor or you're rich. And this leads us into the second point. First, we need to understand the trappings of worldly status. But second, we must treasure Christ Above all things, we must treasure Christ 
above all things. The rich fool builds bigger barns so that he can live at ease. But then as the, as the parable continues, just like James is arguing, he dies and his wealth is made useless. Joseph, on the other hand, stores food so that the people might be saved. And he saves his own family, which ultimately produces the promised Messiah. The rich fool boasts in his own wealth, but Joseph boasts in the years and years in which he was made low so that he might be exalted in the kingdom of God to serve a great purpose. He valued righteousness and honored the Lord in everything, even though he was wronged and oppressed. This is what James is highlighting in this passage. Treasuring Christ is better than worldly riches. You might be uncomfortable with the word boast because that is not the way in which we usually think about or talk about embracing Christ. But consider this passage in Jeremiah as a good context for this type of boasting. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight. In this way, we can boast about our exaltation in Christ. Though the world thinks so little of you, you can look beyond the world's standards of evaluation to your spiritual identity in Christ as the measure of your ultimate significance. How often do we envy the rich, thinking if we only had what they have, we would be fulfilled, or loved, or respected? Do we ever justify our greed by deciding that we need the things of the world so that people will think well of us. We are not valuing Christ above all things. Take pride in the fact that by grace through faith you are, even now, seated on the throne with Christ, with Jesus himself. Stop seeking after one more material thing as your Savior, but boast in Jesus Christ. To you who are rich, take pride not in the things of this world, your job, your money, your house or your car, your 401k, your investments. These things will do us no good in the day that we die. They are transitory, finite, passing away, ineffective in any spiritual significance. And this seems difficult to do in our world that judges us by these things, but paradoxically, as a people who are forever tied to the despised and rejected one, We must boast in our humiliation in Christ. Perhaps there are some of you listening today that love money more than God. Maybe you don't even know it. You may come to church for the cultural status and opportunity. Hear this. One way or another, you will know your humiliation through faith or death. Let it be now in Christ instead of later in the scorching heat. Consider what you value. Brothers and sisters, We must evaluate our lives based on the spiritual benefits of Christ's work on us and not on the material fading riches of the world. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Every sin with which you struggle, every thought that draws you away from Christ and his word, every feeling that encourages you toward worldliness is only amplified by the money you accumulate. Treasure Christ above all things. 
Randy Alcorn uses this illustration. I think it's a good one. He writes, imagine you're alive at the end of the Civil War. You're living in the South, but you're a northerner. You plan to move home as soon as the war is over. While in the South, you've accumulated, accumulated lots of Confederate currency. Now suppose you know for a fact the North is going to win the war and the end is imminent. What will you do with your Confederate money? If you're smart, there's only one answer. You should immediately cash your Confederate currency for U.S. currency, the only money that will have value once the war is over. Keep only enough Confederate currency to meet your short-term needs. The truth is that for the Christian, we know that Christ has promised his return where there will be a new heavens and a new earth. The things of this world will pass away. You, rich people, will pass away like a fading flower. Why wait to invest in the things of eternity? Treasure Christ. Be creative in how you approach this. Look for opportunities to boast in your humiliation. Give generously in uncomfortable ways. If you change your value system rightly, you will begin to see the needs of the kingdom as investments in eternity. You will begin to see the mission of the church to disciple the nations as your chief goal. And you will put your money where your heart is. To us who are rich, God calls us to be risky for eternity. Don't wait, for the rich man passes away in the midst of his pursuits. My brother's father-in-law passed away just last week on Tuesday while I was preparing for this sermon. His name was Ed. He was 56 years old. He was a sincere and growing Christian from all accounts. He woke up. Hear this. He woke up, had his devotion out of John Murray's Union with Christ, then collapsed in the kitchen from a massive heart attack, heart attack while getting his coffee. Ed faded away. My friends, time is not on our side, and money won't buy more of it. And the emphasis on timing is also an important emphasis for this passage. And so, that's why not only do we need to understand the trap of worldly status and treasure Christ above all things, but we need to stay true to the faith. The rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Think with me for a second about all those things of life that you need to do. Projects, work, house cleaning, writing that thank you note, changing your oil, doctor's appointments, taking the kids to school or teaching them at home, lunch with a friend, homework, invoices, meetings, emails, texts, bills, writing out a will, spending time with your grandkids. I can't name everything, so really consider with me what pursuit is on your heart. Whether it excites you or stresses you out or seems completely boring, God's word is telling us there is no guarantee you will finish it. None. Zero. Shouldn't that change how we view our time? Shouldn't that change what we value? And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Yes, life is fading. You are a mist. But you can know Christ now and for eternity. The rich man fades away in the midst of his pursuits. This screams urgency. Do you feel it? You may pass away in five minutes or in 50 years, but there is no guarantee of tomorrow. James places this passage in light of trials that the Christian will face in life. 
He says to remain steadfast, which implies a continuation of time in the midst of suffering. One of the ways the world and your sinful flesh test you and test your faith is by offering you riches and pretending that they will somehow help you escape or at least prolong life. This is folly, but it's an alluring folly. You cannot serve both God and money. Ask the Lord for wisdom and stay true to the faith. The metaphor that James employs is fitting if we think about Valentine's Day or Mother's Day or any day that flowers are given to another. Those are the times of year when most families have wonderful flowers displayed in all their beauty. Yet it only takes a few weeks for the flowers to wither. Remember this. Remember this metaphor that James uses when you're throwing out those dying flowers. Like a fading flower, the rich man will pass away. Don't chase after the folly of riches. Stay true to the faith. When you throw away those flowers, meditate on this truth. G.K. Chesterton, in his book Orthodoxy, writes this creative insight. Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged, they always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. You are a flower that will soon pass away. And God is saying to you, do it again. Stay true to the faith. Do not drift away or be lulled to sleep spiritually by the folly of riches. Money and the things that money can buy are a tremendously powerful lure to compromise one's wholehearted commitment to the Lord. Stay true. William Borden was born into a wealthy family. His father had made a fortune from silver mining in Colorado. At age 16, his parents gave him the gift of a chaperone trip around the world. He graduated from Yale in 1909, where among many extracurricular activities, he joined the sailing club and became the master of his own yacht. He graduated from Princeton in 1912. By that time, he was already a millionaire. William Borden was, in every sense of the word, rich. In the world's eyes, he had every right to boast in his riches, yet he used his riches to give to the poor. With his own money, he funded a New Haven rescue mission and there engaged personally in the work. He knew the trappings of the rich and succeeded in fighting the temptation to selfish indulgence. One well-traveled English visitor, when asked what had most impressed him about America, replied, the sight of that young millionaire kneeling with his arm around a bum in the Yale Hope mission. Notice that when the lowly boast in their exaltation and the rich boast in their humiliation, you get the unity of the church there for all to see. This is a picture of William Borden boasting in his humiliation. Was not Christ seen with tax collectors and sinners? In 1913, William Borden gave up his fortune to travel across the sea 
to proclaim the gospel to Muslims in China who had not yet heard or embraced the truth. Another example of guarding himself against the folly of riches. He treasured Christ. He stopped in Egypt to learn Arabic. But he contracted cerebral meningitis and never made it to China. It can never be said of him that he did not stay true to his faith. William Borden faded away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. The purpose of this passage is not to teach that you can escape death. But it's to teach you to treasure Christ over worldly riches in the life that you live. On William Borden's tombstone are the words, Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation of such a life. May the same be said of you, my brothers and sisters, when we are tempted to cling to our possessions, boast in Christ, who humbled himself even to the point of death. When we are tempted to seek worldly status above the preciousness of a gentle and quiet spirit, look to Christ, who silently marched to the cross for you. When you are tempted to despair in your hard circumstances, seek Christ, who said, not my will, but yours be done. When the fire dims, when the page is yellow, when the flower, when the flower fades, boast in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you gave us your Son in his humiliation that we might boast in our own humiliation. You exalted him far above the earth that we might boast in our exaltation. What a gift it is to know Christ and you who sent him. Give us the faith to embrace you. Give us the faith to see past the temptations of the world. Give us the faith even now to live lives worthy of the calling to which we've been called. As these brothers and sisters go out into the world, bless their witness in the Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.